Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the History Hour here on KZMU. I'm your host and guide, Blaine. And so today I would love to start a brand new episode series where I just tell the story of Moab. And a lot of these are stories that we all know. Um, If you've been around Moab a long time, you have heard uh, stories about uh, particular places, events, uh, dates, people, etc., etc. So there is the Old Spanish Trail and the Elk Mountain Mission. I really want to hone in on those two stories today. So all of this information I'm going to be sharing with you today comes from the perspective of the settlers and the explorers. And all of this information has been compiled over many, many different years from their own personal journal entries. So I'm just going to start off with the Old Spanish Trail. So the Old Spanish Trail was the longest, most arduous pack route in all of U.S. history. Um, Only mules were able to use that route. It was just way too rough to even get a wagon across it. There were two main Spanish colonial outposts. One of those was in Santa Fe, and then the other one was in Los Angeles. The trail was envisioned in explorations launched in the mid to late 1700s, and their purpose was to serve as a connecting link between these two colonial outposts. Spain had conquistadors in the New World long before England and France had any settlements or colonies in the east side of the continent. They were already penetrating uh, the continent as far as Kansas, and they even mapped out the Pacific coast all the way up to Oregon. The way they saw it, occupancy determined ownership. There were two main areas of occupancy from the Spanish within the present-day continental U.S., the valley of the Rio Grande and the Pacific Coast. So they sought to forge a link between the settlements in New Mexico and California that would ultimately determine and dominate to this vast empire that they so desired to have, and a trail to where they could basically branch off and explore other areas between Santa Fe and Los Angeles, because there was very few contact with the indigenous folks in a lot of those regions. Um, There were some explorers that had sort of penetrated, you know, some of these areas, but primarily they really just didn't really know what was truly uh, between. And it's not a stretch, you know, to say that they probably had ideas of creating a lot more settlements and these missions, these religious missions, all along the trail and to dominate more indigenous tribes. So this was the beginning stages of the idea of the Old Spanish Trail. There were many advocates who had favored the Old Spanish Trail. So a few of those to mention would be Escalante, Dominguez, Garces, Armijo, and Jedediah Smith. There were many mountain ranges and vast areas of deep remote canyons and really large rivers. There was just so much in the way. So it's, you know, you have to sort of think there's a reason why uh, the Old Spanish Trail was one of the most difficult, long trails in all of U.S. history. So finding a safe, clear-cut way through all of these obstacles, as you can imagine, would take a very, very long time. A lot of trial and a lot of error. And we know that the Old Spanish Trail comes right through the Moab Valley right here. I mean, we all drive on it every day. It's it's 191 and Main Street in Moab. And it crosses the Colorado River and makes its way off to the Green River, crossing that and continuing on. Uh, But this portion of the trail would be uh, a long time. We're talking decades from the first explorations to map out a trail until it was actually set. 
So one of the first advocates for connecting Santa Fe and Los Angeles was Escalante and Dominguez. And these two men, they were priests or what they called padres. Um, They weren't necessarily, you know, men of great exploration history or anything like that. They were, you know, they were known as holy men. So their ideas for connecting this route were, um, they were just holy ideas is what what they would call them. So during their exploration, uh, they were the ones who were basically um, heading up this whole thing. Uh, They they hired uh, men uh, to to basically uh, map this route out with them. So they kind of had the final say um, and any major decisions uh, that were to occur on their journey. They left Santa Fe in 1776, and they decided to try for a northern route. Now, if we look at a map today, we can't help but wonder, why did the Old Spanish Trail just not go west and just below the Grand Canyon of present-day Interstate 40? I mean, it clearly looks to be an easier route. Uh, Knowing what little information they had of the canyons and rivers, um, it still may have been deemed to be a little bit easier. However, in 1775, the year earlier, Escalante traveled to the Hopi on the plateaus of northeast Arizona to seek counsel and advice in preparation for his voyage. Uh, They told him of a great canyon to the west and other Hopi clans to the south that would be very hostile towards him. So he started his journey leaving Santa Fe, and he kind of headed north through New Mexico, and he came into southern Colorado uh, near the Durango area. And he came to the Dolores River near the eastern side of the LaSalle mountain range that we know today. Uh, He continued to head north in Colorado, though, and eventually crossing into the Utah Territory uh, near present-day Vernal, then Provo, and then sort of started south, crossing the Seaver River, um, ending up near present-day St. George. So he kind of did this big, huge northern loop and came right down. And so now we're here uh, at St. George with Escalante. So by this time, winter was coming fast. Escalante and Dominguez, they were kind of worried of heading further west. Uh, So they just sort of proposed to their 10 men that they head east and try to find a route back to Santa Fe uh, where they felt more comfortable. Uh, They were well-armed and experienced men with them, and they they believed that they could make it west. And so they protested it. But of course, Escalante, uh, he had the final say. And so they headed back east from there. And so, but they had the Grand Canyon in between them. Uh, That would have been the biggest hurdle within these regions. So when they had reached the Colorado River of the Grand Canyon, they followed upstream, they followed it north until they finally found a place to to safely across it. Uh, It's kind of near the present day dam of Lake Powell. Um, And so they had to tediously carve steps in the sandstone all the way down to the river. That way their horses could have safe passage. Uh, This point would uh, later on become known as the Crossing of the Fathers. And today, all of that is under the waters of Lake Powell. But there is a historic landmark that stands on the shore today. From that point, they sort of had, uh, they sort of uh, went south, uh, kind of in modern-day Tuba City, um, all through Navajo territory and deep into Hopi and Zuni territories. And somehow they found themselves safely back in Santa Fe. So can't help but wonder, what if they headed west from the region of St. George? Uh, would they have found their way to Los Angeles and completing uh, a trail system that they would that that would have been uh, who knows that would have been the old Spanish trail right there. Um, I believe uh, I believe that they would have. 
Um, however, uh, this would have changed the history of, of the Moab region totally and completely uh, because uh, by 1929, there were many ex- exploratory routes in place. Uh, one of those was Jedediah Smith's through the Mojave sections. Garces and Ansa, they, uh, they found uh, less arduous routes through the mountains and deserts of the Sonoran regions. So there were a lot of indigenous trails all over the Southwest that these men were following. And there was all these sort of pieces to the puzzle uh, for um, uh, mapping out a route uh, from Santa Fe to Los Angeles. So Antonio Armijo, he was successfully led a trade caravan of all these mules and 60 men from Santa Fe to Los Angeles. He used his knowledge of all of these different exploring routes that had been set before him, communicating with indigenous tribes and clans about some of their trails as well. It wasn't until a year later in 1830 that they could use this path through the Grand Canyon and Escalante that had been that had been found known as the Crossing of the Fathers uh, because of unresolved Navajo conflicts. So a new path had to be blazed through the Moab Valley, crossing the Colorado River there and then over to Green River and beyond, connecting with some of the more uh, original trails a little further west of here. So the old Spanish trail was used as mostly a trading route. Uh, horses, fur, and a lot of different goods were common items found um, in routes from east to west. And the trail was actually named by John C. Fremont in 1848. So uh, for many years, this trail probably didn't really have a name. Um, I have not found anything in my personal research that there was a name uh, before uh, 1848. But there are speculations that some refer to it as the California trade route. And it did not take long at all for the trail to quickly be known by everyone. Soon word was spreading like wildfire. The trail really had its heyday during the 1830s and 40s. Uh, The New Mexico-California trade route um, uh, evolved to easier routes that wagons could actually travel over, making the old Spanish trail obsolete by the early 1850s around that area. Uh, but remained in use mostly by Native Americans. It was this fact that struck the interest of Brigham Young to install a Mormon presence in southeastern Utah and establishing the Elk Mountain Mission in the present-day Moab Valley in 1855 right on the Old Spanish Trail. One of those things I just really can't help to think about is how difficult this trail was. Um, I really kind of want to go back to that <laughs> because you can't even take a wagon across this thing. Like it was, it was so difficult. Uh, it was just pack mules, just so many pack mules on this trail. Uh, you know, like the Oregon trail, you know, if, yeah, you, they could, they could take wagons. Uh, had, they had to leave like at the right time of year, um, hit certain spots at the right time, uh, take the right amount of supplies, et cetera, et cetera. On this trail, though, um, you really didn't have that. I mean, they sort of had um, where, like, water sources were. That was one of the most important things on the old Spanish trails. Where's the water, especially in our region? Um, one of those places that I really want to point out uh, is a rock that most everyone in Moab is going to know. If you have gone to Monticello or La Salle, you have driven right by this rock probably a million times. It's the rock that the Hole in the Rock diner used to be in. And that Hole in the Rock 
uh, home is in today. Uh, that rock was known as St. Louis Rock, and there was the Cane Springs right next to it, kind of where that uh, truck rest stop is right there on the north side of that freestanding rock. And one of the things was that there was just not very many journal entries uh, of like their journeys. There was very few sketches that were done of what they saw along the old Spanish trail. It was mostly just, hey, here's point A, here's point B, here's point C and D, and here's these water stops, here's this river crossing, uh, there are those indigenous folks over here over there so <laughs> it was just just kind of like that but i i really wish that somebody would have written uh down um just sort of like as they like went along um there's just not really much of that but then again you know the old spanish trail it really wasn't used uh, for a very long time um and uh, looking at the grand scheme of things um that's to be expected because um for um you know, to, to get a good, a good trading route, you're going to need wagons. Like you're going to get a lot more, uh, merchandise and goods from one, you know, from Santa Fe to California. Uh, so, um, it was only a matter of time before somebody was going to find uh, a much easier route. Um, and of course, you know, you've got all of these indigenous tribes all over the Southwest. So there had to have been uh, peace and treaties with them. Um, and, uh, all these other things that still sort of had to play out uh, before the old Spanish trail would uh, totally become obsolete as a trading route. And very few people actually left their mark <laughs> within our region uh, during the time that the old Spanish trail would have been used. One of those is uh, the Dennis Julian. Uh, he is kind of a mystery. He was a fur, uh, he was a fur trader and he was a trapper and he was kind of all over the place in uh, different times. And um, I know there's that one over there in Canyonlands National Park that he left in 1836. Uh, there's a similar inscription uh, in Arches National Park that dates June 9th, 1844. Uh, so, like, was this guy just living out here for years and years and years, uh, just trapping and living off the land, uh, just being a frontiersman out here? Um, uh, or was he coming and going? Um, there's it's kind of like a mystery a little bit. Um, so we at least know uh, who he was because he had left his name. And one of those, he left this uh, picture of a big old boat. Um, and I think that we've got a really cool replica example of that um, over here in Moab. If you go to the license plate office in that government building uh, right there, uh, you'll see a big replica of that Dennis Julian um, inscription. And I really want to talk about one last thing with the old Spanish trail that, that really um, is kind of cool actually um you know we've got the escalante um expedition he came out here and he kind of just was stayed on the east side of la salle's shot up straight uh at the dolores river straight up into colorado and then you've got jedediah smith's route his was kind of like in uh western utah kind of going down um and then uh near like vegas and then you've got the garces route um and uh, all these other different routes, but there was just that one connecting link, which was to Moab Valley. And I think that's why it's so special was because all these other places had been sort of mapped out, but there was just that one little valley that would be the very perfect place uh, to have a trail. And that would be the Moab Valley. We know that that ended up being a connecting link and um, creating this huge um, trail from Santa Fe, New Mexico, all the way out to Los Angeles, California. One thing I really want to point out in this episode is why 
is the old Spanish trail so important to Moab's history? I'm surely people would have found their way into this valley one way or another without the old Spanish trail. Uh, naturally. But that takes us to the Mormon church in the 1800s. And I'm going to get into all of that after a quick, short little break. So whenever we come back, I'm going to talk about Brigham Young and the old Spanish trail, how he used that uh, with the Elk Mountain mission and some of the explorations that had happened uh, during that time. So keep that dial tuned in to KZMU and I will be right back. Okay, everybody, welcome back to the History Hour here. Hope you guys enjoyed that break. Um, if you're just tuning in, uh, I am doing a story series where I'm telling the story of Moab and sort of its beginnings. And I just gave a really brief synopsis on the old Spanish trail. Um, and I'm going to kind of get into uh, how the Elk Mountain mission came to be, uh, what was going on there, and why it ultimately failed. And I want everybody to keep in mind that, once again, all of this information comes from the settlers and the explorers. And all this information has been compiled over many, many years um, from their own personal journal entries. And I have gotten all of my information from a lot of different books and online resources. So to start off, I'm just going to go back a little ways. July 24th, 1847, Brigham Young and 148 Mormon pioneers landed and they settled in the Great Salt Lake Valley. So by 1854, their numbers had grew, more settlements had been established, there were wars and treaties with the Ute tribe of the Utah Territory. And the Utah Territory at that time was made up of present-day Nevada, Utah, and the Rockies of Colorado. There was the region below that was known to them as the state of Deseret, which consisted of Southern California, Arizona, and sort of West New Mexico. But Brigham Young sook to establish his church all over these regions. Much like how Moses led the children of Israel to the promised land, he believed himself and by others to be the Moses of his people, having led the Mormons from persecution from the east. He saw these areas in, within our regions here as their promised land. So he sent scouts all over the deep, far reaches of the region to report any place that may be suitable for a settlement. He would hand-select and send many families down and establish settlements. And it was considered an honor and a holy obligation to do so for the church. Brigham Young, just like Joseph Smith, he believed Native Americans to be a branch of the children of Israel from the tribe of Joseph. So in the eyes of Brigham Young, converting Native Americans was a huge deal. Part, if not most, all of these settlements were meant to mission their way and uh, to make sure that there were conversions going underway. So the Ute clan that was in the Moab area here, uh, they were known as the Shreberech Utes. Uh, I've heard them pronounce the Subarek Utes. I'm going to, just for sake of context, I'm just going to say Shreberech Utes. But nonetheless, they are the ones who called the Moab Valley home. So Brigham Young had settlements all over the east side of the Wasatch Mountains and that basically split Utah right in half. 
The West Side was known as desolate, unforgiving, hard to grow food, very little water sources. Uh, he even had read a quote from Orville Pratt, who was a part of the U.S. War Department in 1848. He used the old Spanish trail to get to California for business. That quote had stated that the land was sandy, hilly, and there were no mineral sources uh, at all from what he could see. And he wondered why it was even there. Like, why did God create this place? Basically what he was saying. Uh, So an area like that, I'm sure, sounded kind of impossible to settle. But nonetheless, Brigham Young, he was determined. So furthermore, Young really wanted to establish a friendship with the Navajo and to trade with them. They, they were said to have had an abundance of sheep, goats, horses, blankets, leather goods, and they also worked with iron, silver, and gold. So they had this vast empire, and they were doing very well. Young really wanted contact. So in 1854, Brigham Young commissioned William Huntington and a scouring party to go to the southeast region of Utah, making it the first scout mission in this area by the Mormon church. They had an indigenous guide from the Timpanogos clan from the Utes. Uh, So his name was Sun Cloud, but the Mormons nicknamed him High Forehead, probably because of the style and the tradition in which he kept his hair. Their mission was to scout any place worthy of a settlement and trade with the Navajo if it were possible. When the party almost reached the Colorado River, they encountered the jumping off place just outside of today's main entrance of Arches National Park. Uh, That area has been blasted out for the highway. Uh, That's kind of where the walls get a little, you know, that when you pass Arches going north, uh, it sort of pinches in there a little bit. That's right to where that jumping off place was. But they had to dismantle their wagons and lower them down 25 feet just to reassemble them at the bottom so that way they could continue on. They made it to the Colorado River looking across into the valley. Huntington had called this valley the Elk Mountain Valley. Most likely he called it that because he confused the LaSalle Mountains for the Elk Mountains that are not terribly east into Colorado from here. He described this valley to be lush, green, good soil, many miles long, beautiful, good grazing lands, and it was just a really good place for a settlement. After crossing the river and continuing near the top of the Moab Valley, the terrain began to get very tough, even for their mules to cross. So they decided to once again dismantle their wagons and bury them. They buried them in in these big sand dunes that were near a creek in which they named Pack Saddle Creek, later to be called and today is called Pack Creek. They were able to continue their journey into the Navajos with a light load. They continued south for another 100 miles following today's Highway 191 till they had reached and crossed the San Juan River into the Navajo Territory. Once in the Navajo Territory, two scouts went ahead to lead three miles in front. It was Gregory Metcalf and the Ute guide that they called High Forehead. They were ambushed by Navajo warriors and taken captive. So the Shreeberich Utes from the Moab area had a cavalry that rode in. The Utes parlayed with the Navajos in exchange for their captives. And while they were in captivity, it was said that the Ute guide High Forehead told the Navajos that Metcalf was a good man and that they should really spare him um, and uh, take his life instead. 
Uh, for this, uh, High Forehead was honored very highly later on by the Mormon Church, and he was given a beautiful cabin to live in. And when he later on passed away, uh, he actually had a gravestone and a graveyard, which was extremely rare uh, and uh, for a, an indigenous person back during that time. The Shreveriach Utes uh, chief, his name was Quitsubsockets. I like saying that word. <laughs> Quitsubsockets. He played a very important role in the exchange as well as the year later for the Elk Mountain mission. The Mormons successfully traded with the Navajos during all this before journeying home. In 1855, uh, April to be uh, more specific, uh, Brigham Young commissioned 41 men to follow that same path that Huntington had on his scout trip. They were ordered to set up a mission in a settlement in the valley Huntington had mentioned. But Young still desired to convert the Utes. That was their main purpose of this mission. Trading was secondary, but it was still pretty up there. Because the area was known as the Elk Mountain Valley, uh, the mission was to be called the Elk Mountain Mission. Their leader was 29-year-old Alfred Billings. When the party reached the Colorado River, they were astonished. Towering cliffs to the east and towering walls and cliffs also to the west. Lush grazing grounds as far as they could see uh, south into the valley. They were on the banks of today's Scott M. Matheson Wetland Preserve. When they had crossed the river, they felt very confident in their inventory. And I have a list of their inventory, uh, just in case uh, you guys really want to hear it. I'm going to go ahead and read it. (laughs) Uh, They had a lot. Just listen to what they had. They had 15 wagons. They had 65 oxen, 16 cows, 13 horses, 2 bulls, a calf, 2 pigs, 4 dogs, 12 chickens, 5 plows, 11 shovels, 2 hoes, 6 trowels, 2 iron bars, 6 scythes, 22 axes, a cross-cut saw, blacksmithing tools, and more than enough food and seeds. So they had a lot with them. (laughs) They also felt very comfortable having 99 99 pounds of gunpowder, and they had 37,800 percussion caps for their firearms. They were pretty quick to set up camp and to get seeds in the ground. Uh, Their harvest season was halfway over, so they felt super urgent. Go ahead. Let's get all these seeds in the ground. Let's plant this massive garden right near the river. And their camps, they were not too far away. Their first Sunday, uh, they observed the Sabbath. Alfred Billings, the the mission president, he ordered all the men to be rebaptized in the Colorado River. He wanted to be sure all men would be washed away of any previous sins and saw it as a sign of, uh, from God uh, for their own protection. They would regularly hold church services every Sunday near the banks of the river. They had not seen Quitsubsockets or his clan of the Shreberich Utes. Uh, however, not too long after arriving and establishing different camps for their 41 men, they peered across the Colorado River to find a large gathering of Green River Utes. It was 20 men and their families, so probably just a little under 100 people in total. They said they were being chased by the Shoshone from a war that broke out between them near the Green River. Well, they welcomed them, and the Shoshone never showed up, thankfully. (laughs) Uh, That could have been a disaster. Alfred Billings told them of their their great white chief, he was referring to Brigham Young, and that he had ordered them to live amongst the Utes. These same Utes looked at where the Mormons had set up their settlement, right there on the river. 
And uh, they had already started building uh, their little buildings there. And of course, the seeds were already in the ground for the garden. But they pointed up at the talus slopes up underneath of the cliffs nearby. And they put their attention to some driftwood that had been lined up by the river flooding. And they said, when this river floods again, you're going to be underwater. (laughs) So they moved their camps deeper into the valley near a spring on the east side, about a mile away from their gardens. Now, this, amongst other several things, would actually add to the failure of the Elk Mountain mission. uh, Because they couldn't monitor their crops from a fort that was built a mile away from it. And one of the men had described in his journal that Native Americans were coming in from all directions. And with them being so far away from their crops, um, they would get stolen, and uh, that would dwindle their supplies down. It wasn't until three weeks after they arrived that Chief Quitsopsockets arrived on the scene, mentioning he saw the fires from their camp. From what it was described, his clan of Shrebridge Utes probably lived um, at the base of the LaSalle Mountains, maybe around Miller Pack Creek. Chief Quipsopsockets recognized Metcalf in the Ute Guide, High Forehead. He honored the men and established peace after demanding payment for his valley. Indigenous peoples from all over had heard about this new trading post, and many traveled from great distances. A lot of Utes from the western, uh, from western Colorado regions came in, uh, Arizona tribes, and even from New Mexico. Alfred Billings, I'm sure, was so, super overwhelmed by their great numbers. He willingly traded food and most of their ammunition and powder and necessary resources. But weekly church services never ceased. Uh, many indigenous people were baptized into the Mormon church. Um, one uh, historian uh, said that he believes that they fully didn't understand what it meant. Uh, they probably saw it as a ritual, sort of a sign of peace. I'll get dunked under this water. But the son of Quitsopsockets was unsettled. He felt that the white man stole their land. And as the weeks and months went on, uh, their fort was complete. It had these really big high walls. Uh, it was only large enough to house uh, four cabins. So it wasn't really that huge of a fort. But it was built over a small stream that was coming and flowing from the east side of the valley, a mile inland from the river. Uh, so the site of where the old Mount, the old Elk Mountain Mission was, is kind of been up for debate for a long time. I've met a lot of locals in town who believe it was one place, and I've heard it was in another. Um, uh, we know that it was sort of around the area of where the old Motel Six is, possibly over a little bit closer to uh, where Moab Springs Ranch is today. There used to be a monument at one of the speculated locations, uh, however, that was moved some time ago, uh, and it stands uh, over at the Daughters of Utah Pioneers building, just right there behind Star Hall, so highly recommend uh, zipping over there at some point and checking that out. So over the months, uh, Alfred Billings, he was so overwhelmed and uh, way too concerned with dealing with trading. In fact, uh, he even started to call in his journal, uh, the Elk Mountain Mission, he started calling it the Alfred Billings Trading Post. So as resources were dwindling, he started to send men home in groups and sort of staggered them out. Eventually, there was only 16 men left. So one day, Chief Quitsopsockets, he fell ill and he was bedridden and he was visited by some of the Mormon men and they anointed him with oil. But Alfred Billings did not show up to this visitation. 
we are unsure if he passed away from this illness uh, because uh, he was never really seen from again by the Mormon men, uh, nor was he mentioned uh, beyond this point. His son, however, he took control of things and he wanted the white men to leave his valley. And uh, because once again, he believed that they stole it from him. He gathered a band of warriors and they attacked the fort. One downfall to the fort was, is it was built kind of close to this, to the eastern walls of the valley. So several natives, they climbed up and they shot down into the fort. The battle lasted for several days. Uh, during this time, when the fire would cease, some natives were allowed in the fort to talk and to leave their weapons at the door. And there were actually breaks in the battle. Um, now, the reason of the attack has been up for debate. Um, there, the one thing that they would do was they were really good at their journal entries. Uh, so some believe that the Utes were accusing of Mormon men of killing a couple of members of their tribe. So they wanted revenge. And a lot also speculate that it was just pure distaste for the Mormons settling the valley without an invitation. Uh, so um, the fort was abandoned, and the man fled the Moab Valley, taking very little resources with them. So why did the Elk Mountain Mission fail? Well, I'll be honest, I feel like it was poor leadership. A terrible location and placement of the fort, and trading out all their necessary resources and sending men home. Alfred Billings was not the man for the job, but nonetheless, um, Brigham Young, he felt like he was. So we can't help but wonder, what if the fort were to be successful? What would Moab be like today? I really like to entertain this thought. And because, you know, it's part of our history, though, uh, of a failed attempt to settle this valley. So... Fast forwarding, almost 20 years later, we have Crispin Taylor. He tried to settle here and failed. Then um, George and Silas Green, uh, they came around 1875, 1876. Uh, they had brought a bunch of cattle into the valley. Um, one of them was found dead kind of up, I believe it was Pack Creek, if I'm not mistaken. And um, so that was another failed attempt at settling this valley here. Uh, but in 1877, and this is one of my favorite things, there was somebody that no one had least expected, that they least expected uh, to move into the Moab Valley. He was a Civil War veteran of the Union Army. He was a frontiersman and a cowboy, and he was a former African-American slave. His name was William Grandstaff, and he showed up here with a Frenchman that was nicknamed Frenchie. Now, we don't know anything at all about Frenchie, um, but there was um, <laughs> this kind of funny thing where uh, Grandstaff and Frenchie sort of split the valley kind of down in two, and he was like, hey, you take all that over there. I'll take this over here. Well, uh, Frenchie really didn't stick around uh, very long at all. So a year after they got here, uh, Frenchie decided he wanted to leave. Uh, so there were uh, six families that had came in the valley there that year to settle. Well, guess what Frenchie did? He sold his half of the valley to multiple families without them knowing so <laughs> you can imagine uh, you just bought uh, half of a valley from this French guy and then uh, you start, you know, noticing, hey, there's other people on my land. And then you approach them and then they say, no, I just bought this land from this Frenchman. And they say, well, I bought the land from the Frenchman. So Frenchie sort of, you know, um, 
he sort of bamboozled them, made all this money, and then he got out of here. So that's all we know about Frenchie. Um, and I did an entire episode uh, with my good pal Mary Langworthy from the Moab Museum about William Grandstaff. And I highly recommend you listen to that entire episode. It is available on kzmu.org under Public Affairs, and then just search for the History Hour. And then you scroll down, you'll see that episode, William Grandstaff. But just for the sake of this episode, I'm just going to sort of do a little brief, super brief overcap of William Grandstaff. He was born a slave um, sort of near the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, somehow found his way all the way up in Ohio when the Civil War broke out. He was a part of the first black brigade for the Union Army right there uh, in Cincinnati. Um, and then so time goes on, Civil War ends, he ends up coming west and uh, settling in the Moab Valley uh, and running cattle up the canyon now that bears his name, uh, Grandstaff Canyon. And uh, he had fenced it off at the very at the uh, very front of the canyon, that way the cows could not exit that large box canyon with that stream flowing through it. Uh, so then um, around 1881, right after the Pinhook battle happened, um, William Grandstaff, he got out of here. Uh, he ended up over in uh, Colorado. And he even started and owned his own tavern, uh, which was pretty cool. Uh, he owned some hot springs. And he even had a really nice house out there, which was burned down after he had died. Uh, sort of a thing of the times. But why did William Grandstaff leave the valley? He was the first successful settler. Uh, so after the Battle of Pinhook of 1881, like you got to think, there was a lot more people that had settled the valley. Uh, there was several more families had gotten here by then. And a lot of the men that had lost their lives, they were probably Confederate War veterans, which was a thing. You know, if you were a veteran of the Civil War, you went west. The government wanted everyone to go west after the Civil War. It was this, like, massive thing. And they would even advertise. I know I've seen a lot of advertisements where it says, go west, young man. And so a lot of these cowboys and settlers out here, uh, like I said, they were veterans. So uh, he had told someone in Colorado, this was just sort of uh, sort of a story passed down. Um, he had said that he decided to leave after uh, the Battle of Pinhook, uh, because he was afraid that there were some settlers that were going to take up arms against him uh, because he was black and also because he was friends with the Native Americans. And one of the things about uh, William Grandstaff is, is he uh, was, um, it was said that he had uh, traded a lot with the Native Americans. And one of the things that he would offer them was homemade alcohol, uh, moonshine, that they really, really, really were jazzed up about. So, <laughs> so I'm going to end this episode in 1879 when six more families came so now there's 12 large families living in the moab valley and families back then were absolutely massive they had a million kids <laughs> they had so many kids um but was definitely a necessary thing of the times and I just want to thank each and every single one of you for all of your support for the History Hour. Um, I'm going on my third season here with the History Hour. I started it back in 2021, and so many of you um, 
have just been so good to me and uh, giving me phone numbers and emails of people I should contact. And please keep that coming. (laughs) Uh, The best way that you can reach me um, is if you go to Facebook. I'm on Facebook, uh, Moab History Hour KZMU. That's what my page is called. Um, And I post a lot of really cool stuff up there, uh, old photos that I make into color from Moab. Um, and just and just really cool different things like that. And that will also keep you up to date on all the episodes that I'm going to be doing for the History Hour. So I've got a lot of really awesome stuff coming up this year uh, that I'm super excited about. And I've got some historians and authors that are going to be in the studio in the coming months. We're going to have in, uh, local indigenous history stuff coming up as well. So I've got a lot to be jazzed up about. (laughs) I hope you guys can be jazzed up with me uh, for all these cool things that are coming up. And it's going to be a great year, you guys. So having said that, I will see you guys next month, last Monday at 4 p.m. right here on KZMU.